We continue today with another episode in our series, Intersections. In this series, we're exploring when and where the supernatural spirit world intersected with the world of the Bible and where a specific supernatural event occurred. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. But before we get to today's episode, I want to tell you about how you can continue to strengthen your walk with God. Now, if you enjoy Bible threads, I know you'll enjoy the many other resources we offer at Time of Grace, resources that connect you to God's amazing grace. I invite you to check them out. From our weekly TV program with Pastor Mike Novotny, to our Grace Talks video devotions, to our Grace Moments written devotions, to our books, to our blog, and of course, to our many other podcast offerings. You'll find so many ways to get a daily dose of God's Word. Just visit us at timeofgrace.org. In our last episode, we examined the thread of supernatural events during the 40 years that God's Old Testament people, the Israelites, wandered in the deserts of the Middle East. At the end of the 40 years, the Israelites arrived at a place called Shittim. According to the first century historian Josephus, it was located about seven miles east of the Jordan River. Geographically, the Jordan River runs from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south. At Shittim, the Lord appointed Joshua to lead the Israelites into the Promised Land, the land of Canaan. From Shittim, the Israelites traveled to the eastern bank of the Jordan River and camped there before crossing. When the Israelites left Egypt four decades earlier, the Lord, Yahweh, parted the waters of the Red Sea so that the Israelites could cross on dry ground. The Lord repeated a similar event at the Jordan River. Joshua directed the priests to carry the Ark of the Covenant to the bank of the river. Now, we read in Joshua chapter 3 that the Jordan River was at flood stage at that time of year, making the crossing a greater challenge. As soon as the priest's feet touched the water, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up a great distance away. Something just as dramatic was that the riverbed was dry. The priest walked to the middle of the river with the Ark of the Covenant, and stood there until all of the Israelites crossed over. The Lord then directed Joshua to have twelve men, one from each of the twelve tribes, pick up stones from where the priests were standing with the Ark. They carried these stones into their camp. The twelve stones would be set up as a memorial to remind the Israelites for all time what the Lord had done at the Jordan. After the twelve men had completed their task, Joshua also set up a memorial of twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan River, again where the priests were standing with the Ark of the Covenant. So there were two stone memorials, one on dry land 
and the other in the middle of the river. Then Joshua directed the priests to come out of the river, and when they did, the water in the river began to flow again from north to south. The Lord God had stepped into the world of the Israelites to give them safe and dry passage across the Jordan and into the Promised Land. From the Jordan River, the Israelites headed toward the city of Jericho, which was only about five miles west of the Jordan. That's where the supernatural shows up again. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Based upon what we are told in these verses, there are two possible identities for this commander of the Lord's army. It could have been an angel, perhaps even Michael, the archangel. Or it could have been a visible appearance of the Lord God, similar to when the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, visited Abraham with news that within the year he would be a daddy. Although we can't know for sure, I lean toward the person being an angel for two reasons. One, the person referred to himself as the commander of the Lord's army, not commander of my army. The other reason is how Joshua replied to him. He called him Lord, but Joshua didn't use the all-caps Lord, the name for Yahweh. He used the word for Lord that simply expressed respect and deference. So what do you think? An angel or Yahweh? Whether the commander of the Lord's army was an angel or the Lord himself, he delivered an important message from the Lord God to Joshua to prepare him for the upcoming battle against the city of Jericho. When I was a kid in Sunday school, the story about the conquest of Jericho was one of my favorites. The Lord's instructions to Joshua laid out the battle plan, a plan that most military strategists would have considered crazy. The Lord said, have the armed men, the soldiers, march once around the city on six consecutive days, have seven priests carry seven ram's horns, and have them march in front of the Ark of the Covenant with soldiers in front of them and soldiers behind them. Although the priests were to blow the ram's horn, there was to be no shouting, no war cries from the people. Then on day seven, the soldiers and the seven priests with the ark were to march around the city seven times. On the seventh time around, the priests were to give a long blast on their ram's horn. When they did, Joshua told all the people to shout. And when they shouted, the walls came tumbling down. The Lord demonstrated his power and his presence by amazingly bringing down the walls of Jericho with just a shout from the people. With the walls down, Joshua and his army conquered the city of Jericho. Did you notice how many times the number seven showed up at Jericho? 
It's a number symbolic of our holy God's intersection with his created world. If you want to learn more about the significance of the number seven in the Bible, I did a podcast episode on it in my series called By the Numbers. Check it out. In the book of Joshua, there is one other supernatural event, or, or should I say, a series of supernatural events. First, some background. When word got out that the Israelites had conquered Jericho in another town named Ai, all the kings west of the Jordan came together to go to war against Joshua and the Israelites. Now, don't think of these kings as kings of nations, but rather kings of independent city kingdoms that included the smaller towns in the immediate vicinity. The land of Canaan was a melting pot of various groups of people who lived in these independent city kingdoms. Some of these groups were actual descendants of Canaan, which was the name of the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Canaan was the son of Ham and the grandson of Noah. In Joshua chapter 9, we find a listing of the various groups of people who occupied the promised land. There were the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Meanwhile, one of the city kingdoms named Gibeon hatched their own plan for dealing with Joshua and the Israelites. By the way, the people of Gibeon were associated with the Amorite people. They planned a ruse, a trick. The leaders of Gibeon sent a delegation of men to Joshua. Their donkeys carried worn-out sacks and old wineskins that were cracked and mended. The men of the delegation had old clothes and sandals that were patched. In the sacks were dry and moldy bread, all a ruse. The delegation claimed that they had come from a far distance and wanted to make a treaty with the Israelites. Unfortunately, Joshua and the other leaders didn't consult the Lord for insight and guidance. They just went ahead and made the treaty. Now, when Joshua learned of the deception, he went to the leaders of Gibeon and the surrounding towns. When Joshua asked why they did what they did, they said they were afraid of suffering the same fate as Jericho and Ai. Joshua would indeed honor the treaty he made, but he forced the Gibeonites to become permanent woodcutters and water carriers for the Israelites because of their deception. Well, when the other five Amorite kings learned what the Gibeonites had done, they gathered an army to attack Gibeon. These kings were from the city kingdoms of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. The Gibeonites sent word to Joshua requesting help because the five kings had joined forces and were planning to attack their city. So from the camp in Gilgal, Joshua led his entire army to Gibeon, taking the coalition army by surprise. On the way, the Lord appeared to Joshua, telling him that he would give the Israelites total victory. We also learn the details of the Lord God stepping onto the battlefield. The Lord threw the coalition army into confusion. When they fled, the Lord hurled large hailstones down from the sky, killing more of the enemy soldiers than were killed at the hands of the Israelite army. Then the Lord did something amazing, something only the Creator God could do. 
he stopped the sun in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting for about a 24-hour period. Now, in reality, the sun didn't stop. Rather, the Earth's rotation stopped, making it appear as though the sun had stopped in the sky. The Hebrew word translated as stopped means motionless or rigid. The God who created the universe certainly had the power to stop the rotation of the earth. The Lord God, once again, stepped into the world of his people to provide total victory over their enemies. That brings us to the book of Judges. In this book of the Bible, the Lord God demonstrated his supernatural power in two ways. First, he appeared to some people in a visible way as a human being. Secondly, he gave special power to some of the judges that enabled them to perform superhuman acts. Do you recall the Lord God's instructions to Joshua and the Israelites as they were about to enter the land of Canaan? The Israelites were to possess the land completely and drive out all of the Canaanite peoples. But they failed to do so. So in Judges chapter 2, we learn the consequences of the Israelites not doing what God commanded them to do. Listen to what the angel of the Lord said to the people. Remember, the angel of the Lord was the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. We see these consequences unfolding throughout the book of Judges. An Israelite enemy would rise up and become a thorn in the side of the Israelites until the Lord God would send a judge, a rescuer. And then there would be peace for years and decades until another enemy rose up. This cycle would repeat and repeat for hundreds of years. As we read through the pages of the book of Judges, we learn that the Lord God showed up to commission and empower individual rescuers called judges. The first of these cycles involved the king of Aram, who made the Israelites subject to him for eight years. When the people cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, so that he became Israel's judge. Othniel defeated the king of Aram, and they had peace for 40 years. Next was Ehud. The Lord raised him up as Israel's next judge to defeat uh, Eglon, the king of Moab, a country to the east of Israel. Ehud accomplished his God-given assignment by assassinating King Eglon in a courageous and remarkable way. It's a really interesting story. Check it out in Judges chapter 3, or listen to my podcast episode in the series True Crimes Bible Edition. After Ehud defeated the Moabites, there was a time of peace for 80 years. The next judge was Shamgar, to whom the Lord gave a superhuman ability. Shamgar, with just a cattle prod, 
was able to strike down 600 Philistine soldiers all by himself. Yet the Lord obviously was with him. In chapter 6, we learn that the angel of the Lord again appeared, this time to a man named Gideon. Seven years earlier, the Midianites had become a thorn in the side of Israel by repeatedly destroying their crops as they were growing in the fields. Midianites were the descendants of, guess who? Midian. And who was Midian? He was one of Abraham's sons. When Abraham's wife Sarah died, Abraham married a woman by the name of Keturah. Together they had six sons, one of whom was Midian. The Lord God, in a personal appearance that took place under an oak tree in Ophrah, called Gideon to defeat the Midianites. Gideon was hesitant to take on his assignment as a rescuer. He didn't think he was qualified or had the right pedigree. And he wasn't even sure that the person talking to him was the Lord God himself. So he asked for a sign. But first, Gideon went to prepare a meal for his visitor. He prepared a young goat and some unleavened bread and brought it to the visitor. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of his staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Because of witnessing the Lord's power, Gideon built an altar right there on the spot and called it, The Lord is Peace. A bit later, we learn that the Midianites joined forces with the Amalekites and some other eastern people, crossed the Jordan into the land of the Israelites, and camped in the valley of Jezreel, located southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Gideon summoned the Israelite soldiers from the nearby tribes of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Although the Lord God had promised Gideon victory over the Midianites, Gideon humbly asked for a sign. He placed a wool fleece on a threshing floor and asked of the Lord that the next morning the fleece would have dew on it, but the threshing floor would be dry. The Lord did exactly as he asked. And then he made one more request, that the next morning the fleece would be dry and the ground around it would have dew. The Lord again did as he requested. As Gideon gathered his army together, 32,000 strong, the Lord God told him that he had too many soldiers for this battle. Say what? Can you ever have too many soldiers? To pare down the army, Gideon told the soldiers that if any of them were fearful of going into battle, they were free to leave. 22,000 went back home, leaving an army of 10,000. The Lord said, Ah, still too many. At the direction of the Lord himself, Gideon took the 10,000 down to a river that ran through the valley. The Lord told Gideon to separate those who drank directly out of the river from those who knelt down, cupped their hands to get water to drink. The number who knelt and cupped their hands to drink was only 300. Those 300 became the army to go and fight the 135,000 soldiers 
in the Midianite coalition. The battle plan involved a torch in one hand, a trumpet in the other, and a clay jar. The 300 approached the Midianite camp. They smashed the jars and blew the trumpets, making a lot of noise. The Lord God then caused the Midianites to turn on each other with their swords, and then they retreated to the Jordan River. As they were retreating, Gideon sent word to the tribe of Ephraim to head to the Jordan River to keep the Midianites from escaping. The tribe of Ephraim responded and ended up capturing two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. The Lord God once again demonstrated his supernatural power by giving Gideon the victory with his tiny army of 300. Nothing is ever impossible for the Lord God. During Gideon's life, the Israelites enjoyed peace, in other words, no war, for 40 years. But when Gideon died, the Israelites went back to worshiping the Canaanite gods and quickly forgot how the Lord God had delivered them 40 years earlier. The cycle repeated multiple times, with God allowing neighboring enemies to be thorns in the Israelites' sides and then raising up other judges to rescue them. It wasn't until the time of Samson, about 175 years after Gideon defeated the Midianites, that the Lord God showed up again in a supernatural way. Because of the unfaithfulness of the Israelites, the Lord God had allowed the Philistines to be a thorn in the side of Israel for four long decades. The Philistines lived in Philistia, which was west of the southern part of Israel along the Mediterranean Sea. One day, the Lord God showed up again as a human being. He visited a woman married to a man named Manoah from the clan of Dan. Mrs. Manoah wasn't able to have children. So, much to her surprise, the angel of the Lord told her that she was going to get pregnant and give birth to a son, a son who would begin the deliverance from the Philistines. Her son would also be a Nazarite. Now, to be a Nazarite meant that their son could never have a haircut, couldn't consume adult beverages, needed to avoid touching a corpse, or eating unclean food. Mrs. Manoah told her husband about her visitor. Manoah prayed to the Lord that the visitor might return to explain more fully how to raise their son, whom they would name Samson. The angel of the Lord, Yahweh himself, returned and affirmed what he had told his wife. By the way, Manoah asked the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that we may honor you when your word comes true? Now, I think the response of the angel of the Lord is worth mentioning. He said, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Even the name of our God is beyond understanding let alone all that he has done. When Samson grew up to be a man, the Lord God gave him superhuman strength in order to defeat the Philistines. One day, when Samson and his parents were traveling, a lion came running at Samson. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. Now that's something I would have liked to have seen. On another occasion, Samson with his superhuman strength, and with the Lord's protection, killed a thousand Philistine soldiers 
And his weapon was what? It was the jawbone of a donkey. One day Samson went to the Philistine city of Gaza. Gaza was the southernmost of the five great Philistine cities. Word got out that Samson was in town. The people of the town hatched a plan to kill him first thing in the morning. But Samson got up in the middle of the night and he used his superhuman strength to tear the city gate and frame from the city wall. He carried it to a nearby hill and set it up there. Oh, this angered the leaders of Gaza. Samson had a weakness, though. Her name was Delilah. Delilah was recruited by the Philistine leaders to find out the source of Samson's strength. She eventually caused Samson to act in a way that led the Lord God to take away his superhuman strength. But that wasn't the end of Samson's story. He would regain his strength one last time. Samson's final act of superhuman strength happened after the Lord took away his strength and allowed the Philistines to capture him, gouge out his eyes, and put him in prison. During their celebration of victory over Samson in the temple of Dagon, the Philistines' god, the rulers brought Samson out of prison to perform for the guests. Samson asked a servant to lead him to the pillars that supported the temple structure. When he could feel them, he prayed, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more. And the Lord God answered his prayer. Samson regained his superhuman strength. He pushed on the pillars and the temple came crashing down. Along with Samson, 3,000 Philistine leaders and members of the ruling class died that day. Samson killed more when he died than when he lived. All because the Lord God empowered Samson with superhuman strength. In our next episode, we'll explore the supernatural occurrences during the lives of Samuel, King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. Now, if you have any questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and God bless.